0: Catherine Pratt is a program manager at Microsoft. She received her bachelor's in aerospace engineering from MIT in 2008. Following graduation, Catherine served four years in the United States Air Force, spending most of her time as an operational flight test engineer on the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. Catherine received a PhD in electrical and computer engineering from the University of Washington in 2019, where she studied the privacy, ethics, and policy of neural data. Her professional work experience includes Blue Origin and the ACLU of Washington, and a fellowship through Tech Congress working on technology policy in the US House of Representatives. Well, hi Catherine, welcome to the podcast. We're really happy to have you with us today. Um, Just to start off, can you tell us a little bit about what you currently work on as a program manager at Microsoft? And then going backwards, can you describe your PhD research to us?
1: Sure, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I am, uh, like you said, a program manager at Microsoft and I work on uh, responsible AI compliance tools. Prior to being at Microsoft, I was in the electrical and computer engineering department at University of Washington, um, and I studied brain-computer interfaces with a little bit of ethics and policy on the side. Nice.
0: That's awesome. Um, So, you come from an engineering background. You're an engineer in the Air Force, and then you decided to do uh, a PhD in electrical and computer engineering. What roles do you think engineers can and should play when it comes to ethics and privacy? That is an excellent question. They should be playing all of the
1: roles. So with everything that uh, you're building and designing, you should be asking questions of why are we building it? Is uh, tech the right solution for this? There could be non-tech solutions for it. There could be other different tech solutions for it also asking questions about who will be using it are the right people going to be using it how could this be used maliciously are there ways that uh, people won't be able to use it maybe a lot of times people develop a tool and it gets out in the world and uh people can't use it for for one reason or another and it's because a certain design feature wasn't considered in making the product and if they had been considered as a as a stakeholder they would be able to use it. So a lot of times, if you can expand your, your stakeholder analysis in your design space, that works really well. One of the frameworks that uh, that we used to look at um, on a different team that I was on um, was value sensitive design which is from Batia Friedman at the University of Washington hey but you know looking at, at the different kinds of stakeholders and, and who's included who's not included so that's something that pretty much anyone can do in the design process you don't have to be you know the ethicist or you don't have to be a designer you can be the person who's who's building or coding it um, so I think it really does does fall to, to anyone engineer or not
0: mm-hmm. Um, I think something that I think about sort of also as an engineer is kind of that difference between being a stakeholder and and playing a role in this versus having the responsibility um, of bringing up ideas of ethics and bringing up ideas of privacy. I wonder, uh, you mentioned a little bit about like, you know, having an ethicist on the team. I, I wonder if you think there's you know, any one person who has more responsibility for like design ethics um, of, of a particular project product than others? Or do you think it's just something that's really just spread out to everyone who's working on a particular product?
1: Um, I think it's spread out to everyone. If you rely on one person, then there's a chance that, you know, if you don't hire the right person, then then you're missing out on that expertise. Really, if you have a, a single point of failure, if you were, then you're you're, you're risking a lot of, of problems. But if everyone sort of has an equal voice or an equal opportunity to speak up, then everyone has the capability to say, hey, I think something's wrong here, or hey, I have an input. And then everyone can contribute to the process versus sort of relying on the uh the wizened old academic in the tower being like yeah. oh you know is this correct or not correct and then it's almost like you're waiting for the ruling to come down and be like this is correct or this is not correct but really it's it's not so much a yes or a no it's you know what is the decision that we can come to together as a as a team mm-hmm.
0: so your experience spans a lot of different environments you've you've been part of the military you've worked in industry you've been part of academia. How have you seen approaches to ethics and privacy play out differently in these different environments? Yeah, that's a great question. So I will say my experience in academia
1: was probably a little different than most folks because I showed up in the biorobotics lab and we had an embedded ethicist. So we had um, my really, really good friend, Tim Brown, who already had a desk there. And so it was really easy to, to turn around and and be like, hey, Tim, you know, let's let's talk about this or have him show up at lab meetings. But it was such a unique experience because it sort of taught us that when you go to places where you don't have a Tim Brown or you don't have a Sarah Goering, you you almost either A, need to be them, but also teach others to, to be that voice as well. And so it's been really interesting coming to other spaces and seeing who else also has that perspective, um, but also teaching others that they can be that voice too. So not always relying on just yourself, but saying, Hey, you know, everyone can participate in this conversation as well. Yeah, it's awesome.
0: Uh, And just a quick note, we interviewed Tim Brown earlier on the podcast.
2: Yay. (laughs) Focusing a little bit more on kind of your current position in industry, what does your day to day look like? What do you like? What do you dislike? Kind of getting a sense for what happens after grad school.
1: Yeah, so so day to day is a lot of coordinating and a lot of meetings so program manager, you're sort of looking at everything from end to end and making sure everything gets done so. There's a lot of planning, there's a lot of coordinating, um, and there's a lot of information gathering. So in my particular job, I manage all the the dashboards to say, hey, this is, you know, this is all the bugs. This is all the the feature requests that we're getting. There's a lot of coordinating meetings like, hey, you know, who has an agenda for this meeting today? If we don't, we can cancel it. If not, what is it that we need to go over to make sure that, you know, particular product they're working on uh, is going to be on track there's a lot of information gathering in the sense that we work on a product. We have a lot of users for the product. And again, going back to that stakeholder analysis of what are the things that, that people need on it? So making sure that we're listening to all the customers to say, this is what they need. This is the requirement they're trying to meet. How do we make sure that's gonna get into the product? So it's a lot of, juggling of resources um, and getting to know all the people so that their their needs are met and the product that we have while we'll keeping the product on track. So it's kind of like a PhD, but on steroids because it's a bigger project and there's more people and it's not just your research, but it's a whole lot of people's work. So PhD is really good practice, uh, but you get really good at time management and people management and skills management. Overall, it's just a really good time because I work with really good people
2: that's awesome. That sounds yeah very management focused. And I'm kind of curious, like, do you feel that being a program manager is something a lot of people do after PhD? Or are there like other career paths do you think that are maybe more common in industry for PhDs?
1: Yeah, so there's a lot of um, actually PhDs at Microsoft. So some of them go into the more technical fields. The teams that I work with, you know, are doing computer vision. They're doing machine learning. They're doing a lot of the the technical side. So there are folks that come out and go straight into that. Um, there's a lot of data scientists. There's a lot of um, analytical people. The the first manager that I had at Microsoft before he came to Microsoft was a tenured professor of uh, philosophy. So and then he he made the jump over. So there's a lot of folks who come in and either are using their technical skills or who are like me, who use the training that they they got in their technical programs. Um, and then sort of on the side, I'm also using some of the, the technical skills that I got. A lot of the skills that you learn are sort of marketable across the board. So just because you got a PhD in one field doesn't mean that you're kind of, you know, stuck there. But a lot of the skills that you learn to like actually get it are super valuable. And so that's something that you can also consider as well.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. It sounds like a lot of the so-called like soft skills that you've learned have actually been very important in kind of driving your career in that sense. Absolutely. Yeah. So then kind of thinking a little bit more broadly, uh, we're kind of curious, like what, what are some exciting possibilities that you see in the field, either within responsible AI or looking back at brain computer interfaces? What are the futures of science that you're excited about?
1: Yeah, I'm really excited as I look at The way that people are thinking about it. So NIST, which is a a government organization, is working on AI frameworks. You have the EU, um, which is working on AI frameworks. You have other countries in the world that are really starting to look at, you know, what should we be considering. It's the beginning of the year, so you have state legislatures around the United States that are also considering privacy and, and other um, technology-related bills. So every year we we start the year very optimistic about what's what's gonna be happening in terms of regulation and, and AI and and all those other sorts of things. But I think every year we also get a little bit closer to having, you know, real discussions about the way that that technology is used. And so eventually we will get to to somewhere productive, but even just in how technologists think about responsible AI and the conversations that I have with others in the company and the way that companies are pre- considering responsible AI and the, the onus that's on them to be able to do the work responsibly, I think is evolving and changing. So we're getting there. It's probably not going to happen overnight, but we're getting there. So it's exciting to be able to work on it.
0: Yeah. Um, so going back a little bit on your path to getting to Microsoft, how did you initially even decide on grad school? Uh, you have so many different experiences. So you know you, you were pivoting from guess, Air Force to Blue Origin um, and ACLU, I believe, as well. How did yep. you decide that uh, PhD was for you?
1: Yeah. So, so the path to the PhD actually requires a little bit of explanation. When I was growing up, I really wanted to be an astronaut. And my dad's retired Air Force. And so what I was about in high school, I was like, Hey, dad, how do I be an astronaut? And my dad was like, cool to be an astronaut. It's four steps to, to fly the shuttle. Cause that was apparently the only way I could be an astronaut. to fly the shuttle. You have to be a test pilot to be a test pilot. You have to be a pilot to be a pilot. You have to be an aerospace engineer. And I was like, cool, four steps to be an astronaut. I can totally do this 15 year old me was like, this is great. So I, that's why I went to, to MIT to study aerospace engineering. I did Air Force ROTC while I was there, graduated with my aerospace engineering degree and got a pilot slot. And I was like, cool, one step down, three steps to go. This is great. I got to pilot training with the military and it turns out I suck at flying planes and I failed out of pilot training, uh, which at the ripe old age of 22, to be told that you basically have failed at your one life dream is a real swift kick in the pants, let me tell you. So I ended up spending three years working on the F-35 drone strike fighter because I still had my commitment to the military because they paid for my school. And when I got out, I was like, okay, cool. Kind of done with this whole engineering thing for a while. What should I do next? And I was like, I want to understand how the brain works in space because obviously that makes sense. Still, still on the, still in the space, space train. And then I was like, oh, but we don't understand how the brain works on earth. Fine, I'll go figure out how the brain works on Earth and then we'll go figure out how the brain works in space. Again, very logical. So my then fiance now husband lives in Seattle. So I moved to Seattle and I was like, okay, I can't really just be an aerospace engineer rolling up to UW and applying to the neuroscience program. I need some cred. Friend of a friend of a friend had just started a lab at UW. And so I got an intro there. And it was an integrated speech and hearing neuroscience lab and i basically became the lab coordinator i was a lab coordinator there for for a little over a year ran the lab did the irbs ran the experiments got to do a little bit of my own research on the side and i was like great i know neurosciencey things i can speak the language i applied to the neuroscience program and i was rejected and i was like that's not how this is supposed to go <laughs> That was when CNT was known as um, the Center for Sensory Motor and Neural Engineering, CSNE. And so I went to the professor who was helping them out with like academic stuff. And I was like, look, I really want to go to grad school. How do I go to grad school? And so they created the postback program, which is a program for folks who have finished undergrad and are trying to get to grad school. And it pays you to take grad school classes, not matriculate. So you're not actually enrolled in grad school, but you can take classes. And they pay you to do research as long as there is a lab that will take you. They surveyed all of the professors who are members of CSNE, and there was one professor who was like, yeah, I got lab space, and it was in the EE department. And that's why I picked ECE, because that was the department that took me. But it turned out to be a really good fit, because at the time, EE was the department that was doing a lot of neural engineering work. And so I did my post-bac program for a year, while I was there, I got an NSF Graduate Research Fellowship. I got accepted to the EE program. And then four years later, I got my dissertation. It ended up working out. It took a while,
0: but yes, that's how I decided to do a PhD. Yeah. it's a great backup plan to being an astronaut. just going to be- I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so what were your impressions coming back to grad school after working? Was it hard? Was there any sort of adjustment?
1: Yes turns out it's really hard to go back to doing homework at night after you have spent many years not doing homework at night let me tell you I still remember staying up late at like 11 o'clock at night trying to finish my homework and my dog looking at me being like you know what I'm just gonna go to bed you uh you finish up whatever you need to do here I'll be upstairs and like taking yourself to bed and me being like I've made some terrible life choices right now Uh, I was never a good test taker when I was in any grade. And then I went back to taking tests and I was like, why am I doing this to myself? Really glad that the department that I chose did not have a test for quals and it was instead of written exam. That was clutch. That adjustment was really rough. But once I got through all the coursework, it was basically like, oh, okay, I'm literally just like coding and experimenting and studying for like 12 hours a day.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I totally get that. It can definitely be a transition back to like, okay, now I have to do the school thing again. Yep. And it sounds like the homework part was maybe the hardest, but I'm also curious, like, what other things were surprising or unexpected about that transition to grad school or being in grad school in general?
1: Yeah. I really hope I don't get in trouble for saying this. Grades didn't matter. They mattered in the sense that you need above a three five for it to count for, like, your general exam or your quals or something like that. But apart from that, like in undergrad, it was like, oh, you need all A's or whatever or something like that. And as far as I can tell, unless you needed it for like, you know, going up for a scholarship or something like that, it was like, huh, if I got 80% of this problem set done, I could just turn it in. Like I didn't need to kill myself to get the rest of that 20% of the problem set done. And that letting go was really hard for me because I was a perfectionist. I could turn in something that was incomplete and it didn't. And it took me a couple of quarters to figure that out because i struggled the first couple of like i have to finish everything i have to do my best and by like the last couple of quarters i had coursework i was like i think that's enough points to get me a three five sure we'll just turn that in did i demonstrate that i knew enough the material to get by and i was like okay cool this is this is literally survival world right now (laughs) we're just gonna we're just gonna turn this in we're gonna call it good That like switch from like undergrad mode to like grad mode. And like what was important in grad school? Your research, your actual output as a researcher versus like the coursework. And that was what took me the longest to understand.
2: Yeah, I've totally struggled with that as well, especially because it's like, you know, being that perfectionist in undergrad is kind of part of what can get you into grad school. And so then you're like, oh, well, now I don't need this skill anymore. I don't have to care about the homework anymore, (laughs) which -hmm. can be hard to get used to that for sure. Yep. Um, So I guess continuing to think about like transitions, what then, uh, and I think you did touch on this a little bit earlier, but like what aspects of grad school helped prepare you for industry? I know you talked about um, some of the soft skills, but I'm curious if there were like other uh, aspects of grad school that have helped you in industry or maybe didn't help you in industry. So I think the equivalent
1: to this is documenting your code, but like making sure you have documentation for everything. So like, why are you doing something? why am i doing this experiment did i write down a reason for why i'm doing this experiment or like why did i write this code block turns out you should have a reason or requirement for everything a lot of times i would like start writing something like what was the purpose of this and if i didn't have it written down i would stop and then like 30 minutes later i was like oh yeah That was why so like having like robust requirements like robust computation really important also and this is a lot of it from my like the time that i spent in dc but like networking and like being able to reach out and connect with people super important because maintaining contacts and connections and being able to have like those people skills you never know when you need to like reconnect with people so there's definitely like working on a project you know being able to connect with someone um, and then, you know, a couple months later being like, oh, I need to talk to someone on like such and such team. I actually connected with them a couple months ago. Let me go dig in my inbox and find their email address. So like that sort of like people connection and that networking skill is definitely something you will never not need.
2: Cool. And you mentioned broadly your time in DC. I'm kind of curious to hear more about that. I think that was where you were dabbling a little bit on like neuroethics on the side. Is that correct?
1: oh yeah that was my that was my uh staffer side so there's a awesome program called tech congress it is a program that puts technologists on the hill i applied and i was the first scholar uh to go and i spent six months as a tech fellow working as a staffer in a congressional office on the hill so i took a six month uh essentially leave to do sort of extended policy research for my dissertation on the Hill. I got to work as a staffer. I got to write bill language that was actually submitted on the floor of the house. So that was cool. I got to go, you know, talk to people about bills and generally, you know, wander around DC and do cool things. That was super fun because it's like, you look at a lot of problems that we have today with technology and, you know, people complain about like consumer privacy legislation and things like that. And I can actually say that, like I have gone to DC and I have actually like worked on privacy legislation and I can talk about how difficult it is and why we haven't actually seen movement on it. But a lot of the skills that I I learned in terms of like how you talk to lobbyists and how you talk to other staffers and how you negotiate language in a bill are super relevant to both the work that I'm doing now, but also a lot of times in academia, it's like, oh, okay, cool. You wanted this experiment, like grant, like, I could see it extrapolating to like grants and negotiating work with other mm-hmm. scientists and things like that. So it was a really cool experience. If anyone wasn't remotely interested in policy or anything like that, 12 out of 10 recommend Tech Congress. Um, it's very similar to like AAAS, the policy fellowships that they have. The only difference is AAAS, you're required to have a PhD. Tech Congress, you don't have to have a PhD. You just have to have some sort of tech background and they have two levels. It's scholars, which is like early career, um, and then fellows, which is like mid-career. But yeah, I did the early career one.
2: Yeah, that sounds really cool. I, I'm kind of curious, like what got you started in that direction? Was it because you already had a neuroethicist embedded? Or how do you make that decision in your PhD that you're going to go be in the government for six months? <laughs> Yeah. So the summer prior to me
1: working in Congress, I had actually done an internship with the ACLU of Washington. So with that one, that was working on the Seattle surveillance ordinance, which at the time was the strongest surveillance ordinance in the country. Also looking at things like smart meters and police from body cameras and things like that. So really looking at the technical side of technology that's being used in cities and, and other such places what had got me to that is you know being in the tech policy lab and being able to look at problems from both the technical and the legal side of things and if you rewind even further you know having been in the military understanding like there's constitutional rights and there's a you know the the bill of rights and first fourth and fifth amendments and things like that being in this tech space and understanding that a lot of what we understand in the physical world doesn't quite translate to the digital world and so how do you actually apply these rights in digital spaces. And so as I worked in these tech spaces, it was like, oh, first, fourth and fifth amendment, the digital space, hmm, that's curious. And so any ways that I could almost like incorporate that sort of thinking into what I did. And so particularly when I got to brain computer interfaces, it was like, this is fascinating. What are the policy implications for hacking someone's brain computer interface? I wonder if we could like pass emerging privacy bills. Uh, So that's kind of what got me on that track. Plus, I'm just kind of like a weird policy nerd person. And once you start talking about like the ethics of something, you're like, okay, well, how do you like codify rules around it and things like that? And so that's just like that slippery slope that takes you all the way down to, you know, running around the halls of Congress. So
2: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. That's really awesome. And like, what an experience to be able to have during your time in grad school or at any point in time, honestly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for coming and chatting with us and telling us about your experiences and um, kind of shedding some light on what it's like to be in grad school, what it's like to do industry after grad school. Generally happy to have you here. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Don't forget to take a bite with Brain Bites next time when we talk to Pierre Karaschuk, a graduate student in neuroscience and also co-founder of Evolution Devices, working on proprioception of walking and fruit flies. Until then, stay curious. This podcast was produced by the Neurotech Student Club at the University of Washington. Hosted by Manishka Maduri and Zoe Steineh Hansen. Edited by Michael Nolan and Clea Winston. Music by Asad Beck. Cover art by Pavithra Rajeshwaran.